So, so thankful for you guys. Glad you're with us across all of our campuses at Bethlehem Church. Advent is here. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, there's nothing like 30 degrees and raining to 60 and humid. We love Georgia. Uh, it just does so much for your sinuses, and so it's a blessing. But we're glad you're here. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going through it. If you're at the OC at 211, we're one house, many rooms. If you're in the South Venues, full house today. Uh, or, or you're with us even on island uh, at St. Croix, our friends and brothers and sisters there. We're glad uh, you chose to worship with us. And what a powerful time of worship. Before we hop into 1 Corinthians 13, which is our text for Advent season, let me get you caught up on one thing, just kind of a celebration. We finished the Walk Back Down series, which was really a vision series for our church. We finished it kind of mid-November. And the idea was simply the church has always risen to the occasion. And the church of Jesus Christ rises to the occasion, a broken society, right? A broken society, unhealthy culture. What does it look like to fight to be a healthy church, unified and on mission for Jesus? And then the reality was it was a, also an invitation into what we're doing as a body. This time next year, uh, by God's grace and your generosity, this campus will be at Highway 53 and 316. This is our last Christmas here. We're relocating. Bethlehem Christian Academy is buying out this campus, which is our school behind here. They're buying out this, and then we're moving there. If you've driven past our project, it is moving now uh, in a fast, fast way. And so that's exciting. Uh, and then we'll follow that up with Oconee County and our 211 campus is expanding as well. And so part of the walk back down was inviting new families in to be a part of this. Many of you a year ago made a pledge and said, we're going all in. It was going to take all of us. That's been the invitation. 100% of the body of Bethlehem Church to be generous. What do you mean generous? That you give and you give joyfully. That our giving and our generosity is toward the kingdom of God. If that happens... 100% of the body is generous than everything we want to happen to expand, to make more room. If you look around, we could use a tad bit more room, right? If you look around, so we could do that. That would give us the chance, 10 services across three campuses. And you guys have responded a year ago. We set out our goal over two years was 27 million across all of our campuses over a two-year span. You guys pledged last year this time 31 and a half. You blew it away and said, we're in. Our yes is on the table. And many of you have been part of that generous. And then this last season, the last few weeks, we invited brand new families to be a part of this. A thousand more people this time this year than this time last year are calling Bethlehem Church home. Their families here. And so I want to give you an update. I invited new families to be a part of this, and many of you took me up on that. So I want to give you an update based off our last commitment weekend where we were is we're now entering into the second year of this, and this time next year, our first project will be complete, and we'll be on to the other ones as well, making more room. But 358 new households pledged. How cool is that, man? Right? Across our this many of you said we're in. We're committed. We haven't been here in the past, but we're committed to building the future. Such a big deal, which brings up our total of pledges, which is phenomenal for you guys, to $36.4 million. You guys are unbelievable. Uh, and because of that, it's a huge deal. And I can't say how gracious and how glad and how honored I am to be a part of this church. In a day and age where the only time people move is when you answer the question, what's in it for me? You guys are people who are in it for the kingdom. And as we expand in the place God has us, thank you for being generous. 
new families that have joined in this. Thank you for being generous in a day and age where everybody's about themselves, that we're about the kingdom of God. You guys are phenomenal. And so I'm going to pray a prayer blessing because today is our big give week. We're starting into year two of this two-year initiative. Uh, and that this is our kind of kickoff Sunday of year two in that. And we're just going to pray a prayer blessing. Many of you give and give joyfully. Thank you. And that lets us continue to move forward expansive. Father, I am thankful. We are one house, many rooms, one church, many locations. And you're doing a fresh work at Bethlehem Church. And we are thankful. Thank you for the generosity of the people of Bethlehem Church. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for the lives that are being changed and the lives that you're going to change. And we thank you that in this time, we get to be a part of your kingdom advancing. Thank you for each family that's represented. Uh, God, for those who give and give joyfully, we pray blessings over them. They don't give just because they're obedient. They give because they've chosen a life of generosity. And so I'm thankful for each and every family in this church. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody across Bethlehem Church said... There you go. Amen. He's with me, right? So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he does this thing. I want to see. We're going to 1 Corinthians 13. If you got your Bible, go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 13. But Jesus does this thing that's real subtle in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's teaching on prayer, you'll miss it, but he's trying to be super clear. You see the same thing come up in 1 Corinthians 13, but I want to take you to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus teaching on what prayer is is and he does that by beginning by teaching what prayer is it so matthew chapter 6 this is jesus and look at what he says and when you pray this is jesus teaching you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others so prayer jesus says isn't a public spectacle prayer isn't religious performance it's not what it is. It's what Jesus says. I'm going to tell you what prayer is, but I'm going to begin by telling you what prayer is, and then you keep going. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who's in secret will reward you. So if you think prayer is a public spectacle, then that's your reward. People going, ooh, look, they're spiritual. That's the whole reward. That's what Jesus just says, and then look at what he says. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So prayer is not about big words. It's not about sounding sophisticated. It's about the posture of our heart before our Heavenly Father. All right, it's so what Jesus said. Here's what prayer isn't. And then look at what he says. Don't be like them, speaking of the hypocrites, the Pharisees, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then here's the part everybody in this room knows. Pray then like this, our... You guys did not sound convinced there, right? <laughs> Pray then like this, our... That's what prayer is. So Jesus does this is and isn't thing. Before he tells them what prayer is, he explains what prayer isn't. Like, you know, now I know we don't like absolutes. I'm going to say this real easy. I know we live in a culture, we don't like absolutes, that something has to absolutely be something. I know it's crazy to think that, right? But I think you're with me. Something either is or isn't. It can't be is and isn't. It's one or the other, right? So it either is cold and rainy or it isn't cold and rainy. It can't be both, right? It is or isn't. Jason is preaching. Jason isn't singing, 
right? Which is good for you. Now I sing to the Lord, I make a righteous racket. I just don't lead you guys in singing. In fact, if Jason is singing, you isn't happy. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's how that works. So Paul does the is and isn't thing. He basically says, you guys think you know what spirituality is, 1 Corinthians 13. You think you know what it means to be spiritual, but I'm going to tell you what it isn't. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes to this church, and the church at Corinth was believers, followers of Jesus, but they were a mess. In fact, in all the New Testament, I would argue Corinth was the biggest mess. All the letters Paul wrote, they were believers, they were followers of Jesus, but they were a relational mess. They were a disaster. And so Paul says, spirituality isn't being super gifted, but not loving. Spirituality isn't claiming to have great faith, but not loving. Spirituality isn't doing these great sacrifices or offering your body to the flames, but not having love. It's not about a public spectacle. He's talking about love tangibly. In fact, a non-negotiable for having the presence of God and being a spiritual person is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? A non-negotiable for being a spiritual person is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I would put. And the first fruit of the Spirit, church, is love. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. So I want to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 6. We're just walking through this text at Christmas. Love came down. Love is Jesus. He is the embodiment. So how does that look? And 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6 is the most practical. What do you mean practical? In your face, in your grill, like saying, this is what love is. And this is what love isn't. Because everybody who comes to church on a weekend, I want to be a loving person. I think you do. I think everybody in this room, I want to be a loving. That's what I want to be. But love is, it can be broad. Paul makes it very specific. Now, if you see this in my hand, Jason's got something new to show you guys, right? <laughs> I know. Some of you are like, he's getting older. No, I'm getting more distinguished, right? <laughs> I went to my doc. I'm like, everything is blurry. And he's like, well, you're 41 and so, or five, right? Uh, but I'm wearing these, I'm learning them because I can't see anything here. And so when I see that, I do. And so if you see me take them on and off, I'm getting used to it. So here we go. Let's read. Love is past like, do I have to read it? Do I have to wear them when I'm reading? He goes, or all the time. I'm like, whichever one. Okay. So here we go. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not or is not envious or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is, love isn't. Love is, love isn't. If you're taking notes, let's get real practical and tangible how love expresses itself in relationships, in your job, in your marriage. If you're taking notes, put this down. Patience and kindness are choices we make, not feelings we feel. Who can I get a witness? Patience and kindness, the first two words Paul couples together. Patience and kindness are choices we make, not feelings we feel. Love chooses to act with patience and chooses to act with kindness. Now I'm going to confess. I'm raising my hand. I am going to own my stuff before you. 
right? What do you mean? I'm raising my hand. Me, some of the most regret-inducing moments in my life, right? Some of the most regret-inducing moments in my life, moments where I was embarrassed the way I acted was in moments where I said something hard, I said something harsh, I was irritable over a situation, my tone was hard, and my face showed it, and I was visibly or verbally impatient. Regret-inducing moments in my life where I go, man, oh man, if I could have that back. Most of the time, they were where I was visibly or verbally impatient. Now, I'm just confessing that. I'm sure none of you have ever struggled with that in your life. You all have, right? And every time there's been those moments, and my wife's in this service, she can explain a few of those moments. Every time there's been those moments, here's, tell me if this has ever happened, it's what I said kind of in response. I don't know what came over me, I'm usually very patient. That's what I said, something like that. I don't know what came over me, I'm usually very patient. You said the same thing, am I right? I'm not sure why I did that. I'm usually a very patient person. That's not true at all. We just say that. What do you mean? We think it's the situation that made us impatient, but think about it. It is only when you're in a hard situation or it's only when you're dealing with difficult people do you actually know if you're patient or not. What do you mean? Think about it like this. When people are doing what I want them to do, I'm incredibly patient. When people are acting like the way I want them to act, I'm the most patient guy you'll ever meet. When people are responding to me the way I want them to respond, whoo, I am patient. When things are going in life just as I planned. Right here, Captain Patient. And you're the same way. But the reality is Paul pushes and he chooses the word patience. Of all the words Paul could have chosen, he chose patience. He said, you could love is compassionate, right? Love is loving, love is caring, but he said patience. All of the words he could have picked. But isn't it funny that we live in a world where people don't do what we want them to do and things don't go the way we want them to say and the way love most expresses itself is in this act and this choice of patience. The word patient in the Greek is actually long-suffering. We know the word patience. The Greek word, the New Testament, is long-suffering, which means patience is more than just being able to sit in traffic on 316. It means it's more than just being able to wait at the doctor's office for a couple of minutes longer than you want to. What do you mean? What, what patience actually means, love can receive wounds without having to even the score. Love can roll with the punches when necessary. Love doesn't keep receipts. It doesn't feel the need to right every wrong done against it. 1 Corinthians 6, they're suing each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, go read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they're suing each other over small things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and these small things hacked them off, ticked them off, and so they would sue each other. And Paul would say this, you guys are trying to win, but you've lost just because of your posture and your choices toward each other. For some of us this Christmas, for some of us in these moments, here's what I would say. You are dealing in a situation. I, this is the Holy Spirit. You do with this what you want it to. 
You are in a situation with family members this Christmas, at your job, in your company, extended family, and you're dealing with a situation right now that is calling for a patience you don't feel like you have. Some of, that, that's where some of us are. We're dealing in a situation, we're dealing in a circumstance, something going on in our family, something going on with our job, something going on with our boss, something going on with our employees, something going on with our school and the kids or our school or the school our kids go to. But you're dealing with a situation in real time and you don't feel like you have the patience. This is what I'm saying. The way love most practically expresses itself is not when you feel patience, but when you choose patience. You're dealing with people, some of you. Marriage situation, kid situation, neighbor situation, opportunity as it come your way situation, and you're dealing with somebody that's incredibly difficult, and you are tired of, like, like I don't, Jason, I don't feel patient. Well, it's not going to show up in your life like a commodity where you're just like, oh, now I have it. What I'm saying is you have to choose patience. In fact, let me, t let me show you this. This is what I had to learn because this is where most people end up and we mess up. Patience and kindness aren't personality-driven. They're loving choices people make. I won't push back because some of you are arguing me in your head for a second. You, you think to yourself, I just don't have a patient personality. That's how I was for a long time. In fact, my wife's in this room. If you, I'm an extrovert. I'm a people person. My wife's an introvert. She's quieter of the two of us. And so oftentimes when I'd have one of those moments where I'd be impatient, right, or I, or I, or I, and I still can have them from time to time, right, don't tell anybody, but every once in a while, where I do, in this moment, I used to say things because my wife's super I would say, well, you just have a more patient personality than I do. Or she would respond by saying, or I just make different choices than you do. I, no, no, you think I'm, I'm talking to you now, right? <laughs> but some of you go, oh, I just don't have a patient personality. No, you just don't make the choice to be patient. No, you just don't make the choice to be patient. In fact, here's what Peter says. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. And doesn't sometimes it feel in life like promise of God, God works all things together for the good. Why isn't this working out? And we feel like God is slow. And it's like, man, doesn't it feel like that? And like the things aren't going. God isn't working out. This person isn't changing. But look at what Peter does. No, no, I'm talking about you. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me say this to you, church. I want everybody to receive this. It says, for all of us in this room, you will never have to be more patient with someone in your life than God is patient with you. And some of you don't think God is patient with you because you toot your own horn. And let me tell you this, God's incredibly patient with you. Because you, you spit... And you turn your nose, right? And you go the different way. And we just do what we want to do, thinking God. No, no, God is patient with us. Look at what Paul says. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Romans 2, if you're here during Romans series. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness 
is intended to turn you from your sin. What does that mean? It is not God's wrath. It's not God's repayment that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. God is kind toward us. And the way God is most kind toward us is God is patient. He is patient with us. You will never have to be more patient in a situation or with a person than God has been with you. Then he, took the, he takes these two words. Love is patient, kind. It isn't envious. It isn't boastful. Right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but envy is this idea of stirring in us jealousy, what others have, opportunity others have gotten, recognition others have, comfort and ease others have. That's what envy is. I want what they have. But boast is the flip side of that. Boasting is, if envy is I want what others have, boasting is I want others to know what I have. My gifts, my talents, look at me, world. Those are more attitudes. Love isn't envious or boastful. And I'm going to keep moving here. Then he says this, love isn't arrogant or rude. I don't know a ton, but I do know when arrogant is there, usually rude is following. You with me? In fact, the word arrogant means to be puffed up. The idiom or the phrase around arrogant in the Greek, that original language there, is the idea to be puffed up. It's an attitude of being pretty sure of yourself. And look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge, what does that word right there say? Puffs up. While love does what? Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. There's this healthy debate that's happening in the church of Corinth. It's around a conviction. 1 Corinthians 8, go read it for yourself. These were all new believers, people who were new to following Jesus. And some had this belief that if you ate meat that had been offered to an idol, an animal that had been offered to an idol, you would be defiled. There are others that says, no, there's no such thing as an idol. Those are fake. In Christ, man, you are free. Eat what you want to eat. That was the debate. Can we eat this or can we not? And there were some that were like, you can eat it. There's no such thing as like this fake God, this phony God. We know that Jesus is the one true God. If there's been an animal sacrificed to an idol, you eat the meat. They were dumb to do it anyway. Eat the meat and enjoy it. And others were like, no way. If you eat that meat, you will be defiled. Sounds crazy to us. Now, the ones who were right were the ones who actually believed, if you want to eat the meat, eat the meat. What you eat doesn't make you clean or, in, or impure. They were the ones who were right, right? The others were really conservative. They were up. They were like, no, we're not going to. And Paul makes the point. You're right in your belief, but you're still wrong because you're arrogant about it. Paul is making the point in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can actually be right, 1 Corinthians 8, I should say, about what you believe and be wrong. In fact, I've seen this play out. They were right. If you want to eat the meat, eat the meat. Again, different time, different place. You're free to. But I've seen this play out. I want to talk for just a second. There's this dynamic that happens I've seen over time in churches around this idea right here of unique convictions. These were believers. This was not an issue of right and wrong, sin and not sin. This was an issue of unique convictions. And I have seen this play out a ton. What do you mean? Unique conviction. There's a group of people, our kids can't go here or do this. We don't drink alcohol. 
right? Or we won't see this or that. And so there's some unique convictions people have, which is good. But what happens is in their unique conviction, oftentimes they look down on those who don't share the same conviction. Or those who don't have the same conviction look at those people and go, oh, they're arrogant and super spiritual. They think they're so spiritual and so great because they don't. And there's this back and forth, and it's all around unique convictions. And that's what Paul's saying. He's pushing here, going, this is not an issue of right and wrong. This is not an issue of sin. Oftentimes, there's disagreements over this thing called unique convictions. I feel like God has told my family, or God has led me not to, or we aren't going to. Praise the Lord. But somebody else may not share that same conviction. Then how do we go about that? I cannot tell you how many times in church I've seen this just made a mess of. I've seen this made a mess of in my life, of people who share these, and they push this unique conviction to be this universal thing that if you don't see it like I see it. So I say all that to go, Monday night, I'm in Orlando. I'm at a pastor's thing. There's about 50 pastors. We're eating dinner. It's a pastor's conference. Uh, We ate together at night, some larger churches. We ate together at night, and during the day, we would do ministry uh, with the Green family. There were 18 of them, and it was great, and so that's Let's golf, okay? And so uh, 18 greens, right? He got it over there. You're with me, right? And some of you, nobody's got that joke. That's actually funny. You guys don't know, okay? But we would get together at night, and we had a conversation. It was just dinner, 50 of us sitting around tables. And that one guy, who's probably the most well-known of the pastors in this group, if I said his name, you'd know who he was. He got up, and we're just talking. It's an open forum, open conversation, and he shares a, it's so funny because I knew what I was preaching about this week. Love is not arrogant. It's not rude. He gets up, and he shares a personal conviction, a unique, the conversation, go figure, with a group of pastors devolves to politics. I needed thicker glasses in that moment. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, my, here we go, right? So it goes to politics, and so this guy, if I said his name, many of you know who he is. He got up and shared a unique conviction he had. I thought to myself when he shared it, love isn't arrogant or rude. Why? Because I, who am a brother in Christ, he's my brother in Christ, he's my friend. But I disagreed vehemently with his position. Completely. Now, y'all are going, what was it? I'm not telling you, right? (laughs) What was it, right? But I disagree. We're brothers in Christ. He got up and shared this unique conviction he has, and I thought to myself, I could not disagree more with his position on this. I couldn't disagree more. I do not think this is, like, that was the deal. So what did you do? I said, hey, old man, sit down and shut up. It's my turn to talk. No, I didn't say that. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Here's what I thought. In those moments, love isn't arrogant or rude. Here's what that meant. This is not an issue of right and wrong. We have different convictions. So so here's where I would push. It's okay to have differing convictions and not be contentious. Like love defers to others sometimes. You don't have to be on the same page with everybody, even brothers or sisters in Christ. Our culture's terrible at this. The church has got to be better. What do you mean? The most practical part of this whole talk is right here. You can have the right belief in the wrong tone, and guess what? Love is absent. And I want to talk to some of you who've been in church for a while, 
and you're really sure of your beliefs, your problem is not your beliefs, your problem is your tone. What Paul is saying, you can actually have the right belief. Agree with the Bible and your tone be wrong. And guess what? Nobody feels love in those moments. In fact, many believers make the, well, I'm a Jesus follower. That means I'm a person of love. Paul would disagree. You can be a Jesus follower, sure of what you believe, and your tone be awful and love not be felt. Right? When you're in a situation where you don't agree with someone on a certain thing, again, this is not a right and wrong. We're talking about unique convictions for your family in your life because of your story. And you just have a different set of convictions. Here's my question. How, when you are in that situation, how do you respond? Because for a lot of people, they respond by going, well, I got to give them my opinion what I think. Can I say this? Sometimes love just defers to others. I know that's crazy in our society. Stand up for my right. Well, stand up for it. And lose the opportunity and influence God gives you. Again, I'm going to get emails on this, and I'm good with it. What I'm saying to you is we as the church of Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters, we may not agree on everything, and it's not an issue of right and wrong. It's an issue of unique convictions. Church, are you with me? And we can disagree and still choose to love one. Another love is patient. It is kind. It isn't envious, right? It isn't boastful. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. When someone is envious, when someone is boastful, when someone is arrogant, they're rude. If you follow 1 Corinthians 13, here's what it says. They insist on their own way. Paul says love doesn't insist on its own way. Think about it. Many marriage problems does not come back to each of us insisting on our own way. Sometimes in family dynamics, what is the culprit? We're insisting on our own way. Sometimes relational dynamics, love is absence because we are insisting. That's our whole premise. Envious, boastful, arrogant, and it comes across because we want it our way. We see it right. It's got to be this way. This is the deal. Here's the question I would ask. Do I tend to be self-seeking or do I choose to be self-denying? Do I tend to be self-seeking or do I choose to be self-denying? Like in marriage, in my relationships, it's always got to be my way. Love does not insist on its own way. It has the power to defer to others. Here's what that means. Being like Jesus in the most basic way is looking out for the interest of others. The most basic way. Being like Jesus is looking out for the interest of others. What's the word agape? Agape defers to others. That's the word for love. It defers to others others. It gives others the opportunity. It's okay to take a step back and not get its own way. It's self-sacrifice. It's self-denies. In fact, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. What he's saying is, 
In life, it's not about our way. We choose to follow Jesus. It's about the glory of God. No one should seek, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And Paul wants to be clear. Is and isn't. Love is, love isn't. We're very broad with love. But Paul's trying to be, like, like as believers, how this expresses itself. Love is, love isn't. In fact, love is a lot like oxygen. What do you mean? Like oxygen to the human body. I'm not, I don't know tons. I'm a theology, right, degree, not anatomy. But I do know this. Doesn't matter how strong your body is. Doesn't matter how good looking your body is in front of that mirror before you came to church going, man, looking good today. It doesn't matter how strong your body is, how good it looks in the mirror, how hard you work out at Bodyplex. It doesn't matter how strong you are. If you don't have oxygen, you're dead. Correct? Here's what Paul's saying. It doesn't matter how convinced you are of your spirituality. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how much you can argue theology. If you don't have love, you're dead. If you don't have love, you're dead. What did Jesus say in John 13? They will know you by your love for one another. They will know you're in my family. They will know you're with me. They will know the distinctive, the characteristic, the trait. They will go, he's with Jesus, is love. That's how they'll know it. That's the family trait. And you guys get family traits, right? Many of you know I have a younger brother. Uh, he preached here back at Labor Day for me. His name's Ryan. This is Ryan. He's a pastor at 1122, Church of 1122 in Jacksonville. Uh, he's the executive pastor, which means he does what Pastor Matt does. He preaches when I'm not preaching, or he leads the staff. That's kind of what Matt role here is. And that's what my brother's is at 1122. He and I, if you look at us, take a quick look here. <laughs> There's some pretty distinctive traits right here. There's some pretty distinctive genes. Like if you're around my brother, like genes, G-E-N-E-S, right? If you're around my brother and I, here's what you'll pick up on fast. We're the same height. We got some of the same facial features. We're both follically challenged. You know what I mean? <laughs> but if you're around my brother and I, what you'll find out is our personality is very similar. We laugh at the same thing. Our humor is the same. We both have that dry wit, or as I like to call it, loving sarcasm, Right? I had dry witter, the loving son. Like, if you're around us, you're like, yeah. And in fact, if some of you may have known my dad. He passed away a few years ago. But if you met my dad or knew my dad, you'd go, they look like their dad. It's called traits. It's called distinctives. You can't like, like, oh, that's brothers. You can see it, right? Those guys right there. They're brothers, and you can see it because of their features, because of their distinctive church. Are you with me? That's how you know. You can look from a distance and go, oh, those guys there. Like if you meet my wife and her mom, there's no mistake. My wife and her mom are mother and daughter. You're like, I don't know where. No, you can see it. It's there. That's the distinctive 
That's the traits. We're family. You can look from a distance and go, they're family. Why? Because they're similar. They look the same church. This is so powerful right here. Love is the family trait of those who are with Jesus. Love is the distinctive. Love is the characteristic of those who, this is, no, no, no. Love is what it points to. That's our identifying characteristic. That's our trait. I told you the reason I'm teaching through 1 Corinthians 13, if you are here last week. Raise your hand if you are here last week across all our campuses. If you weren't, come talk to me at the end. No, I'm kidding. It's okay. We love you. Most of you were, okay? Two weeks in a row, y'all are crazy, right? 1 Corinthians 13, here's what I told you last week. Reason I'm teaching through 1 Corinthians 13 is last Advent, last Christmas, I spent the whole Christmas going through 1 Corinthians 13. Verse by verse, word by word, line by line. I'd preached it a hundred times in marriages, in weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, over and over again. But the Lord just refreshed and renewed some things in me. And last week we ended going, if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and everywhere the word love comes up, if you put Jesus in, there's this whole new thing that begins to set off. But in my journal, there was this, I took these three verses last year. Because everybody here at church, you're here at church, and you would go, yeah, 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 I, I, I am a loving person. I want to be a loving person. I want that to be a, dist everybody. There's nobody under the sound of my voice that goes, nah, I ain't worried about love. No, no it matters to us. Women, and so those last couple of verses, do you see how powerful this is? This is so big. Those last few verses in 1 Corinthians 13, you want to know if you're loving? Jason is patient and kind because that's what love is. And if I'm loving, then Jason is patient and kind. Jason isn't envious or boastful. I hope not. Jason isn't arrogant or rude. Jason doesn't insist on his own way. Jason isn't irritable. Put your name there. In fact, across all of our campuses, will you stand with me? Across all of our campuses, we close. Like, what does it mean to be loving? Here's what it means. Jim is patient and kind. Carolina doesn't envy or boast. Steve isn't arrogant or rude. Love is and love isn't. Josh doesn't insist on his own way. Teresa doesn't insist on her own way, right? Jason isn't irritable or resentful. Mike isn't irritable or resentful. Frankie doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Michelle is patient and kind, right? Isaac doesn't envy or boast. Ben is not arrogant or rude. Andrew doesn't insist on his own way, right? Mike isn't irritable or resentful, even after the game last night, right? They don't deserve, but do you see it, church? It comes to life. What I'm saying to you as the people of God is our God is patient with us, and he is kind toward us. And the mark of our life is that love bears out. Will you pray with me? And as our prayer teams come, I'm going to ask Pastor Joel to end us in these moments together, just prompting you in these moments to examine your heart. As our prayer teams come, Pastor Joel, will you take this? And prompt us as we close. First Samuel chapter 16 says, The Lord does not see as man sees. 
We look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's actually the verse that pierced my heart in realizing that I needed a relationship with the Lord. I grew up in church. I knew what to say. I knew how to act. I knew what not to do and what to do. And all of a sudden, I hear this scripture being read out loud and thought, so it's not about the outward appearance. It's about my heart because if it's about my heart, I'm in big trouble. If you want to know how you are doing in your relationship with the Lord, you, you investigate who you are when no one's around. Not when people are around, but who you are when you are by yourself. That's how your relationship with the Lord is. And one of the, one of the things that weighs heavy on my heart is service after service, Sunday after Sunday, people who go to church and do the outward appearance and they have it seems like they're in a good place and yet on the inside, they do not have a relationship with Jesus. And when you look at this list of 1 Corinthians 13, when you look at that, you think to yourself, man, I cannot do that on my own. There may be a line or two that I maybe could, but for the most part, if it were not for Jesus in me, I can't do that. And so there, there's that deep need inside of me that says, I need some, I need help. And the only help I can have is in a relationship with Jesus. And there's probably people in this room who even had a conversation last night and said, you know, we've tried all these things. Let's try church. Let's try God. And then there are those who have been in church their entire lives. And yet the whole thing boils down to one thing. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? One thing I know, if the creator of the universe who formed you, formed the earth, formed you in your mother's womb, lives in your life, you can't hide him. And it's not about the actions, the things that we do. It's inside who we are. So this is my prayer for every one of us. If you will, I want you to pray with me. Our number one prayer is that not one person leave this room without knowing that their sins are forgiven. Not one person leave without knowing that your sins are forgiven. So, Lord, our prayer today is search my heart. Search my heart. Just say that to yourself, to God. Search my heart and see, Lord. Search me and know me. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you will cause there to be a boldness in us, that we will respond to what you're saying. If there's someone here who does not have a relationship with you, that today be the first day they realize what love is, who love is. So we pray that that will happen now in Jesus' name.